0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet by Matthew T. Huber. The climate crisis is a class problem rooted in who owns, controls, and profits from material production. As such, it will take a class struggle to solve. In this groundbreaking analysis, Matt Huber argues that the carbon-intensive capitalist class must be confronted for producing climate change. The narrow and unpopular roots of climate politics in the professional class is not capable of building a movement to face this challenge. For an alternative strategy, he proposes climate politics that will appeal to the vast majority of society, the working class. Huber evaluates the Green New Deal as a first attempt to channel working class material and ecological interests and advocates building union power in the very energy system we so need to transform. In the end, as in classical socialist movements of the early 20th century, winning the climate struggle will require an internationalist approach based on a form of planetary working class solidarity. Climate change as class war. Building Socialism on a Warming Planet by Matthew T. Huber. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The capitalist world system is ordered from its political economic centers, But its structure and dynamics have above all else been analyzed, exposed, and to a certain extent transformed from the periphery, particularly from Latin America. This interview is about the United Nations CEPAL, La Comisión Económica para América Latina y el Caribe, or in English, the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean. CEPAL is the institution that after World War II gathered economists from across Latin America in Santiago, Chile, where they developed the conceptual framework for understanding the world economy as a set of unequally structured relationships between primary commodity exporting nations on the periphery and finished goods manufacturers in the global center. The primary commodity exporting periphery faced a structural problem of declining terms of trade with the industrialized center. In other words, the relative price of the primary goods that Latin America exported, like sugar or coffee, were declining over time relative to the price of the machinery that Latin America needed to import from the wealthy center in order to industrialize and diversify their peripheral economies away from just exporting those primary goods. The challenge was to overcome the development paradox. The periphery needed more trade and aid, Sepalinos believed, to overcome their long-term dependence on trade and aid. The capitalist global economy has undergone profound transformations since Argentine economist Raúl Prebisch took over Cepal in 1949. But the foundational insights of Sepalinos, which would later pave the way for more radical and Marxist dependentistas in their dependency theories, and also for world systems theory, remain critical today for understanding the power relationships that continue to pervade the global economy. Since England's capitalist takeoff and the rise of the capitalist world system, Each new contending developmental state, from successes in Germany and Japan, or more recently, South Korea and China, to the continually frustrated efforts across today's global south, each country has been forced to contend with a constantly transforming world system that is premised on protecting incumbents in the center and dominating the periphery. Even as, meanwhile, the contradictions of that process for the global center have accelerated. My guest today is historian Margarita Fajardo, and we're discussing her book, The World That Latin America Created, the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America in the Development Era. In it, Fajardo tells the story of CEPAL and the multiple projects of CEPALinos, from its founding, through its early battles with the IMF over the causes and solutions to inflation, the polarization over the U.S.'s reformist alliance for progress, and Cuba's revolutionary break, the flight from the Brazilian dictatorship to Allende's democratic road to socialism in Chile, and then Pinochet's fascist coup, all the way through the rise of dependency theory, and then of world systems theory. It's a remarkable story. I don't think you will hear an interview like this tracing the history of Latin American economic thought in such depth with such a brilliant guest on too many other podcasts. My point here is not to brag, though it is bragging, but it is to remind you why you listen to The Dig, so you are more receptive to my request for financial support, which I'm making right now. If you love The Dig, please support us at patreon.com slash dig we have lots of goodies to send you to thank you for your support, including our weekly newsletter sent to you by email in exchange for a monthly contribution of any amount at all, even $1. We get new supporters every day. We also lose supporters every day because people lose their job and because they, God forbid, stop listening to podcasts for some reason or because they suddenly become revolutionary Marxist-Leninists who have no time for Jacobin's reformist so charade. Anyhow, we need your support to keep making this happen. Please contribute what you can at patreon.com slash thedig. That's patreo dot slash thedig. Okay, here's Margarita Fajardo, a historian at Sarah Lawrence College and the author of The World That Latin America Created the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America in the development era. Margarita Fajardo, welcome to The Dig.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me and having me here. Very excited.
0: There were... Two fundamental initial insights that shaped CEPAL, and they were first developed by its longtime leader, Argentine economist Raúl Prebisch, and and we'll discuss this a lot later. It would go on to do a lot to shape dependency theory and world systems theory. So the first insight was that the global economy was divided between center and periphery, and then second, that these primary commodity-exporting economies on the periphery that they faced a structural problem of declining terms of trade with the industrialized center of the world economy. Explain these two interrelated insights. What constituted the center and the periphery? And what about that relationship within the global economy structured those declining terms of trade?
1: The center and periphery refer, refers exactly to that inequality. And it refers to an inequality that springs from the international division of labor, one in which um, the peripheries are producing commodities or raw materials and you know agricultural products, mining products, for the world's industrial centers, who in turn are producing sort of manufacturers and capital goods that the periphery buys. Uh, so this specialization in this sort of, on the one hand, on raw materials and on the other, on manufactures, is what Creates this uh, is what the, the the idea of center periphery tries to capture, and the problem was is that at some point, what uh, the this relationship or or rather this sort of the relationship between center and periphery became uh, an obstacle uh, for economic development because the prices of uh, those primary products or the, those commodities were in the long term falling uh, in relation to the prices of manufactured goods. And what this meant was that there was no, the world means two things, I guess. It has implications sort of like a theoretical level and it has implications at a practical level. At a theoretical level, it meant that sort of the ideas of the advantages of a specialization in international trade were coming into question. Some of those very principles of uh, 19th century liberalism and on a practical level, it meant that the the countries that specialize in these products, which are in Latin America or, or, or Africa and Asia sometimes as well, like won't be able to sort of catch up or their income is not going to be able to catch up with the rest. So uh, those are the kind of fundamental kind of questions there. I would leave it at that for now, but we can talk certainly talk more more at that.
0: The concepts of center and periphery when we hear them today, Sound very Marxist, and Marxists would certainly come to embrace them later on. But at the time of Sepal's founding, or when Prebisch took over, he had developed these ideas while working for the Sociedad Rural Argentina, the association of the country's largest agricultural exporters, not exactly a bastion of, of revolutionary politics. And, and and also while he served as central banker under the authoritarian government that was later overthrown by Peron. Meanwhile, you write that in Latin America at the time that marxists were more interested in studying the feudal structure of the region's domestic economies and and political structures where did Prebysh fit into economics and intelligentsia at the time particularly in Latin America what what was he drawing on to develop his analysis
1: well let me first back a little bit to prevish's kind of position in a way because he as you as you clearly say he's a he's a policymaker in a way he's a economist in practice even though he's a professor he's really not an academic so his circle is really those of like he's embedded in solving very in a way practical problems of of the economic policymaker and the the first time he used the notions of center and periphery words with regards with money flows and how the money flow in and out of the of the periphery during kind of this capitalist cycles and and so it was in this very sort of constrained concept that, as you say, clearly has nothing to do with Marxism. But there's some literature that talks about this kind of early context of prevision, how some ideas that he was circulated within the circles that he had, and he could have been exposed, let's say, to kind of some of the terms or, or the ideas, if not necessarily had any ideological influence on him, I think. And that is sort of the kind of major disconnect that in many ways, it, it was on, it was only going to be like in the 1960s and early 1970s, I guess, with dependency theory that some of these ideas are going to connect explicitly uh, with with Marxism. And, and even so, like the debates about whether dependency theory is or is not Marxist inspired or is not within the Marxist canon, if you will started very early on and persist, I guess, to this day.
0: Sepalinos believed that the solution to this entrenched structural disadvantage for peripheral economies was to be found in a combination of trade and aid with the center, which you write amounted to, quote, the periphery's development paradox, the need for more trade and aid, notwithstanding the long-term dependence on trade and aid. How did Seppolinos see trade with the center as resolving problems caused by trade with the center? And then, and then what role did aid play in that vision for breaking out of, of the development paradox?
1: I think this is is uh, to me is uh, I it was it's a very interesting or and something that sometimes sort of escapes us about third world or global south development experts and development uh, statesmen and others who are interested in kind of conceptualizing what development is and it has to do with the fact that there's a lot of they're not economic nationalists or so- seeking for like autarky, uh, but rather as as kind of many of the this. Disc- Uh, proposals that um, that Cepalinos um, put forward, it has to do with kind of better terms. I mean, literally better terms of trade, like in this sort of sense, but like better uh, organization of international trade. So it serves the interest of these nations. So as to why, what was the role of trade and aid in the development paradox? So first, what is the development paradox? And I think one of the the defining features of the development paradox, or the way I try to explain it briefly, is that Cepalino saw that industrialization in the long-term was gonna be able to with, or shield some of the economies from the vulnerabilities of trade and from, and was and was gonna be able to, to transform the relation between center and peripheries that they envisioned. And by so doing was gonna transform the global economy. But in the meantime, like in the short term, industrialization required larger and larger amounts of foreign exchange as more uh, kind of more expensive goods needed to be imported to keep up that industrialization. Think about technology or think about machines that if, you know, there are more sophisticated machines or equipment that is needed to produce more sophisticated goods. Like starting, if you start from like paper or beer or bottled beer, right? Like, or any of these two kind of moving to producing cars. Uh, Capital goods will require a lot more uh, foreign exchange. And therefore, you need even more trade to get those foreign proceeds to continue with the industrialization process.
0: This is a basic problem with moving up the value chain to make and sell the stuff that will make you more money. You need to buy expensive stuff.
1: Stuff. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that was the problem that they were um, confronting, and hence why well, it's sort of a paradox. What's going to help you solve your problem creates deepens uh, sort of the issue that you're trying to solve. And and I think they thought that trade agreements, like commodity trade agreements, or price stabilization mechanisms, or aid, uh, is a mechanism to compensate for this, to comp to kind of solve that fill that gap. Of the ever increasing need for imports, with an ever decreasing value of exports in total, right? Not in, not in, not just in prices, but also in 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 volume. So that's 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 what they thought of it, like this compensatory mechanism that was going to be able to kind of solve, in some ways, the the development paradox.
0: Yeah, and ultimately solving the development paradox would require some form of cooperation from the first world or center.
1: I mean, that is the basic premise of their project. And that is something, I guess, that dependentistas um, are, are are later going to criticize them about. Uh, precisely believing that the world economic order in the post-war era was built or built on the assumption that there was going to be international cooperation and that there was going to be uh, some respect for national autonomy. And so... Cepalinos, in way, believed in these uh, promises and premises of this order. And, and that's something that uh, dependentistas are going to later on criticize them for.
0: CEPAL was established in Chile as a United Nations agency in 1948. How did Latin America go about establishing such a regionally specific body within the UN? What perceived need was it responding to within this brand new international political institution? And then lastly, why did the great powers go along with it?
1: So I I, I think that uh, Latin American representatives kind of saw a space opening up where there was none, let's say. So there were commissions or regional commissions established for war-torn regions like Europe and Asia. And it was sort of justified to kind of veer off from the UN internationalism discourse and practice to kind of adopt uh, regional uh, organizations within the institution, because because of it was like an emergency, right? Because of the urgent needs of reconstruction, and then uh, I think at that moment, Chilean diplomat who had the idea of CEPAL kind of saw an opening there and saying like, well, this could be the institutional precedent, if you will, to to, our, to advocate for an, for a similar organization for Latin America. And this, and so they did, requested uh, an organization for, uh, for Latin America based on the premise that Latin America had both suffered had economic difficulties created by the war, and that it had also participated in the war effort by, in a way, giving cheap products of key commodities for, for, for the war. And the interesting thing to me also is that CEPAL, unlike the other commissions, kind of acquire a life of its own and an importance that the other ones didn't. And this we can maybe talk uh, about it more of why and the role that other Cepali- like CEPALinos have to do with this sort of transformation of the institutions and becoming it and enlarging the scope that the very limited scope that it was supposed to have. And so to go back to your question of how does it fit in this sort of general institutional uh, framework that was created after the war, I think, and this is uh, something that I think is, is important to to talk about, the IMF, Look, like, you know, when the IMF, uh, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank were created, they were also supposed to be a third organization, right, on international trade. And this organization sort of never materialized, the International Trade Organization. And I think in many ways, CEPAL started to fill that vacuum. And it became the the site, sort of the locus for having um, discussions about the role of international trade in the economic order and uh, in development uh, as well. So I think that's why there was a space that needed to be filled and kind of CEPAL started to um, fill that role.
0: Alongside Chile, CEPAL took root in Brazil, especially beginning with a young economist named Celso Furtado, who had a lot of influence in the developmentalist administration of, and my Portuguese pronunciation is not good, uh, Getulio Vargas, who was the president at the time and a former dictator, which, like Prebisch's work in Argentina under the authoritarian government there, reveals just how broad of an appeal there was for state-led developmentalism across the region. It was not just a left-wing thing. What about that moment in Brazil made it so fruitful for Zeppelino ideas to gain so much influence? And then what what did Zeppelinos accomplish with that influence?
1: There's two ways to kind of ap- approach that question. I think on the one hand, uh, some of the explanations for the influence of Brazil has to do with kind of the Networking and institutional building role of of, of Asepalino a, a like Celso Furtado. I think he's he has a lot of responsibility for bringing Sepalino ideas, making them a part of state development institutions, and he himself became a very leading kind of became a, a adopted a, a, or or rather had many leadership roles in policymaking that. That kind of embedded many of the Cepalino ideas into state institutions, so he has a very good role, like in the in the in the terms of like they he has an active role in creating that influence. But as you say, I mean, I think there was also some demand for this, and it and I think sometimes what we think is like, well, there's is, this is the time of like economic nationalism and people and and the the idea around Cepal is that. It, it acquired a lot of influence because it sort of le- legitimized a process of industrialization that was ongoing. And I don't think this is not, I mean, I think that's that's true, but it's only sort of a partial answer. It was not just about industrialization. I think one of the reasons why it acquired influence was because of what we were talking about, of this development paradox. The idea that there was something needed, additional to industrialization, uh, that there needed to be cooperation, that there needed to be tr- better trade agreements and aid sort of appeal to many policymakers. So I think it's both both of those uh, things, like not just the idea of industrialization and support or ideological and, and sort of intellectual support for industrialization, but also conceptualizing some of the very day-to-day struggles of the short term. Because I guess it's something that sometimes we also think of Cepalinos as sort of the in bringing about the long or or talking about the long term effects of international trade on development. But they were also very preoccupied with the short term, as we will kind of see of their interest in inflation. And they were preoccupied with having enough foreign exchange at the moment to solve that development paradox. So trade and aid, as as, as, as we mentioned before, were were those mechanisms. And I think that resonated uh, with policymakers, not even in not only in Brazil, but um, especially in Brazil because of the word of Furtal.
0: You write about this really important economic forum, this Organization of American States OAS Economic Forum that takes place in Quintanina, Brazil in 1954, where Sepalinos won over much of Latin America to this really comprehensive developmentalist proposal that they put forward. It included Guaranteed prices and markets for Latin American exports in the center, meaning the United States. Economic development planning to industrialize peripheral countries through import substitution industrialization. And then also, critically, new lending criteria for the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the Export-Import Bank. You write, quote, Whereas international development organizations understood monetary stability as a prerequisite to lending, Cepalinos insisted that lending was necessary for monetary stability. And as I said, Cepal won over most of the representatives from across Latin America. And yet their proposal was essentially blocked by the U.S. administration of President Dwight Eisenhower. What were the stakes of this meeting in Kitanina and why did the u.s oppose what Paul was putting forward and what and what were the consequences of of the u.s becoming such an obstacle
1: well I think the stakes of the conference were were to show it was sort of Sepals how would you call it like coming out party coming out party <laughs> yeah uh, in which they they we see a whole not just piecemeal, uh, suggestions here and there, but a complete, as as you were saying, like a complete comprehensive plan. And that's what, that's why you sort of call it like a, a development platform. Like they sort of presented there the development platform. And it was also because it was a, the it was also important because it sort of showed the confrontation between the OAS and CEPAL. We have to remember that the OAS, OAS the Organization of American States, which acquired that name uh, only the same year that CEPAL was founded. And I think that's not coincidental.
0: It was the Pan-American Union prior to that.
1: It was the Pan-American Union and it created, uh, it had this Inter-American Economic and Social Council, which when CEPAL was created, many, some like the American policymakers and uh, some U.S. Uh, representatives of the U.N. argued that that Economic and Social Council made CEPAL irrelevant, basically, that there was no need to create another institution that had an economic mandate for the region because that one already existed. And so the OAS meeting in 1954 in in Quitandina was like the test of this conflict between the OAS and CEPAL. And so what I think I, what I was trying to show there was like, well, in many ways, as you were saying, like it Sepal sort of won that that match at least, and it positioned itself as like not only like it took over a bit on the organization of the meeting but also it um managed to set the agenda uh, of the discussion and i I don't know if like the impact of the u s blocking um the initiative i don't i think I don't think it was necessarily like a big transformation in the sense that m- much of that was sort of expected I think. Uh, so it wasn't there were uh, signs of a kind of change in u.s policy that there were sort of leaks and like announcements and sort of that there was an attempt to kind of change the u.s policy but I think uh that it made it made so I don't think it was necessarily that transformative
0: what was more important in in other words was that sepal really was beginning to win the the battle for ideas within latin america
1: i think so i think so i mean i think in that sense that's why the conference was important regardless of the position of the of the us i mean this is a battle that was gonna keep on going for 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 more decades right to kind of try to get the center to cooperate in the ways that in some way in the eyes of cepalimus it had promised to do when it established itself as a hegemonic power and, and the center of this kind of new global order. So it was something that they were sort of expecting uh, the U.S. to take the role that it, in a way, aspired to have, I guess.
0: Well, while CEPAL was waiting for cooperation from the United States to be forthcoming, they first looked to regional cooperation and integration, starting with a project of El Salvador-led economic integration of Central America, And then also this proposed payments union that would solve the problem of these hard currency limits that governments across Latin America faced. But you write that regional integration ran into the, quote, unresolved contradiction of the unequal trade relations between centers and peripheries within particular Latin American countries. And then in terms of the payments union, the proposed payments union, the IMF, Basically blocked it, insisting that it could do and should do whatever was needed. What promise did regional integration hold for Cepalinos?
1: The the regional integration projects are something that I think deserve a lot more of attention than they have had so far, and I only sort of started digging in into them. But I think Cepalinos were, or that's the language that they spoke with when they talked about regional integration was about. In a way, taking advantage of economies of scale, like national markets were too restricted were too small to kind of make industrialization like this. Uh, what we were talking about before, like this getting up in these uh, stages of harder and harder uh, levels of industrialization to they were too small to kind of um, make that feasible. And so they believed that regional integration could do that. So, for instance, they and, and when they look to Europe and when they look to the, the U.S. industrialization, they a lot of these policymakers remarked that successful countries had some sort of continental wide size. And that I mean, and if you could, you know, think of the Soviet Union, I guess it, it applies the same way. And they were also kind of doing efforts uh, for industrialization. So I think that um, that's the thought that was in their minds, like, well, we need bigger uh, the size does matter and we need uh, bigger, bigger markets uh, for our for our product. So I think that was part that was behind the regional integration uh, project.
0: Also, you, you write that Latin American countries did not have a lot of trade relations with each other at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. That was that was very. So that 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 was very restricted, which is kind of has shifted around. A lot, like in the 21st century or by the 21st century. That is not longer true. There's a lot of trade relations within those countries, but it was very true in the, mid, in the mid-century. So it was important for them to kind of establish those kind of trade uh, relationships to kind of circumvent the need for hard currency, uh, for instance. Like, so there could be some sort of barter, let's call it, barter-like, because it wasn't barter, but like barter-like agreements that could circumvent the need for hard currency, which was the only kind of mechanism that these countries could trade um, among themselves. So it was if they could trade with each other without using hard currency, then the hard currency could be saved for uh, future projects of development that they could like investment in these um, machines or larger or more hard, more expensive capital uh goods. so that's that's definitely something behind the uh, regional integration project as well
0: but so at this point in the early years cooperation from the center isn't forthcoming and regional integration isn't isn't working either are are Prebysh and other sapalinos getting getting frustrated
1: I, I don't think they necessarily are getting frustrated just yet but i think in the early 1950s because they're just starting, I guess. But uh, but I think, I mean, if, to be perfectly honest, I think that their whole project starts with frustration. They are seeing that there are many changes that need to happen quite quickly, cause, uh, and they're not. Because remember that at the point where Cepalinos kind of begin their project, a lot of the kind of development path are, are a lot of the large Latin American countries like Chile, Brazil, Mexico, uh, Argentina, are already kind of moving away, moving from that easy sort of stage to the difficult stage. And so they start their project with a sense of frustration and urgency that something needs to happen. That's why cooperation is crucial at this moment because that's when it's needed to give that kind of, to make the, the leap, right, to this other um, stage. Uh, and that's why it's, so they're adamant, in in our, they insist on it. So I think many of them are, are frustrated, but in many ways they're also I mean, they keep working on the same project for decades. So something has to be like they're hopeful, I guess, that there's some role for them in transforming these um economies.
0: In the early years, CEPAL worked together with the IMF. And I think I think that you're right, if I remember correctly, that Sepalinos even initially saw the IMF rather optimistically as a sort of global Keynesian entity. But soon they came into pretty serious conflict, starting with inflation. And Sepalinos articulated a structural account, which identified the roots of inflation as being in these fundamental issues, like the unequal terms of trade, unequal land tenure, while the IMF, in a move, in a position that would be very familiar to us today, blamed rising wages for rising prices, and so insisted that austerity through these stabilization plans were the only solution. And in response, Sepalinos accused the IMF of being monetarists. And this is really a remarkable part of your book. They deployed monetarist as a derogatory term well before Milton Friedman and fellow neoliberals became so associated with it. How did this conflict between CEPAL and the IMF over inflation emerge in the nineteen fifties and and what were the political and policy stakes of their differing interpretations?
1: Well I think that oh although um, the IMF and CEPAL, the conflict between these two organizations has some becomes or is considered kind of an ideological dispute, like a dispute about ideas of where, where, or how does inflation um, originate, and what are the uh, mechanisms to deal with it? What are the effects, and what is the relationship between uh, inflation and and development, and uh, inflation and growth? I think we can start, or what I what I try to show in the book is that. The conflict starts before it becomes ideological. It, it it's a question about uh, power and influence. It's a battle of these two institutions that are trying to assert themselves in the in Latin America. And we have to remember uh, that the IMF was in a bit took a sidestep position from Europe and European integration, and that very quickly uh, the IMF, like the developing countries, become the most important kind of clients and an audience, I guess, for IMF um, proposals. So
0: Because the IMF feels like it got shut out of Europe, basically. It got outmaneuvered institutionally.
1: Institutionally, yeah. They didn't have a role in the creation of the payments union. The Marshall Plan came in and sort of made uh, European integration part of a process of bilateral relations with the U.S. rather than uh, of an international part of the Kind of internationalism that the uh, IMF represented and so the the role so Latin America becomes this uh, an important battleground for these I mean for Cepal because it has a scope but for for the IMF as well so this battle between Cepal and the IMF that will have very important ideological they would take an ideological shape let's say begins with this battle over influence and how to what is the appropriate scope for each of these institutions? Can CEPAL make proposals uh, such as the Monetary U- Payments Union, the P- uh, that they proposed in the 1950s or does that sort of encroach in the territory of the IMF? So these are the, and, and of course, within these institutional battles, there is uh, something at stake and is defining precisely what is the relationship between inflation and growth. And that is something that is going to be uh, come about later on in the debate between Sepal and the IMF.
0: Yeah. And, and ironically, at least initially, Prebisch was himself more of a monetarist, which is in keeping with his more generally small-c conservative worldview. I mean, he even, amid these inflation debates, returned to Argentina to work with the military dictatorship that had ousted Perón. What happened during the 1950s to bring this conflict over and inf- over inflation within CEPAL and between CEPAL and the IMF, what happened to bring it to a head in Chile? And how did that conflict propel CEPAL toward the left, toward the side of an increasingly organized working class and, in a way, against the theoretical and political line held by Prebisch
1: What was going to become like the Sepalino approach to inflation begins as sort of a split between Cepalinos themselves. And especially between kind of master and disciples, like in a way, some of the disciples, if you want to call it, um, like the Cepalinos, because we should remember that senior uh, Pravish was a lot was a senior figure uh, with regards to the rest of um, well, in relation to the other Cepalinos, by a lot, and uh, and he had, I mean, he has a found a kind of leading role, and Cepali- some of the other Cepalinos start to kind of contest that, contest the position that he has taken and especially those political options that he took um, uh, by going back again to work for an authoritarian regime in in Argentina. And Cepalinos contest that decision and like uh, question Prevish for, for doing so and start thinking about like, well, maybe there are other ways to explain inflation that not necessarily have to do with the quantity of money and that actually kind of go back to one of the premises of the Cepalino project that has to do with what is the position of the Latin America or the periphery in general in the international division of labor. Maybe that also plays a role in understanding the the kind of uh, long-term inflation that Chile uh, had. And remember, like we should remember that in the nineteen kind of 1940s and 50s, Chile had a sustained but not high-level inflation, not compared... Like it's it's not the levels of the hyperinflation of the 1980s, but it does have a a um, high level that is sustained over time, and it becomes a problem for many reasons, like maintaining the well maintaining the value, and it becomes a problem for the cost of living uh, in the 1950s as well. But so I think it has to it it has to do with also the incursion of other experts in the Chilean arena that Cepalinos were also like contesting and saying like, well, how can we be kind of the most important? Can we have a have our uh, headquarters here and we are not the ones leading the discussion about inflation. So it also has to do with positioning themselves in, in the economic policy arena as as uh, important actors in defining uh what inflation is but I think part of the debates about inflation have to do the of the what cepalinos are gonna end up coalescing about what the origins of inflation are have to do uh, with uh, conflict as to what were the uh, origins of inflation and and many aprevis did uh, talk about the what was called like the cost the the wage price spiral or sort of the cost approach to inflation that in many ways sort of ends up blaming wage rises for the increase of inflation but I think this was not necessarily like uh, monetarist uh, understanding this was more a mainstream understanding kind of you know anyway of Keynesian that was sort of also the prevalent kind of idea about about inflation at the time. And so at the moment that this is the sort of mainstream understanding that Cepalinos come with other approaches to inflation is, is sort of interesting the structural approach to inflation that is gonna say, well there are two things driving inflation. One is a lag lagging agricultural sector that doesn't produce enough food to feed the population. And then the other one has to do with the impact of the periphery um of, of being located in the periphery and trade, that there's a lot of volatility coming on in the economy via the exchange rate that generates inflation.
0: Yeah, and and the sepalino left advocating this structural approach really attempts to make the case that the struggle over inflation is a class struggle. An an argument with with important implications for the US in the 1970s and one that has, of course, become very relevant in the U.S. today and as a result of the global power held by the Fed for the entire global economy, particularly the global south.
1: So, yeah, and, and, and I think to go back to kind of one of the questions that that you stated before, the effect it has over Zepal as a whole. So in many ways, the structural approach to inflation in the beginning is is sort of considered or or they, they think of it as a kind of a middle ground position in a way, sort of a an attempt to kind of be holistic, holistic and comprehensive while returning to some of the key sepalino tenets. But the approach also sort of a, acquires these or has these tremendous effects in in the late nineteen fifties and late and early nineteen sixties in Chile but also in Brazil, in Brazil that radicalize uh what uh, the structural approach means, and so as many people start using uh, the ideas uh, first explored by Sepalinos um, of against stabilization plans, the structural approach to inflation, and Sepalinos sort of become become very much uh, or start to represent part of a of, of a radical or not necessarily a radical left, but sort of sets them in the in the political left. To some degree, and that is changing very quickly because there are other forces that are pulling them to the right, I guess. It's a moment of of a lot of political tensions in Latin America in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and Cepalinos are sort of navigating that very polarized arena and they are themselves being transformed by it.
0: Yeah, with this polarizing politics with an increasingly militant and organized working class, this inflation crisis also polarizes CEPAL, and the left comes out talking about, you know, as you say, first initially structural, appro- the structural approach being a more holistic, moderate approach, but many CEPALinos radicalizing alongside the working classes in these countries to critique the monetarist stabilization plans as in favor of capitalist elites and the IMF pushing them as essentially an imperialist force in the region.
1: Right. So, I mean, they could have said taking the path of understanding inflation as a class struggle, and that was something or as a mechanism of uh, redistributing income between classes. But that was not necessarily the approach taken, uh, or that was not what became the Cepalino approach to inflation. And yet it was still sort of radicalized and used by others who would, who were taking up that cause. And therefore kind of positioned Cepalinos in these in sometimes in, in this in this place that many of them did not feel comfortable with.
0: Well, and things would only get more uncomfortable for Say Paul, beginning <laughs> uh, in with the Cuban Revolution in particular, which brought renewed polarization or was both a product of and cause of renewed polarization across Latin America and also created in doing so a new a new left pole for politics across the region in the nineteen sixties. And the U.S. initially promised to respond, not so much through emphasizing the sort of reaction of the 1954 coup in Guatemala, but, but instead by leading a massive region-wide reform effort, the JFK's Alliance for Progress. You write, quote, Although ideologically kilometers apart, both the Cuban Revolution and the Alliance for Progress represented for Sepalinos the culmination of of their project but this was also a point at which sepal really began to politically fracture between reformists and revolutionaries first though how did such different projects initially speak to or reflect or even grow out of sepal's
1: critique in part it had to do with the center free framework like the idea because that notion was, in a way, very powerful and commanding. In a way, it was it allowed um, for embryonic idea. So it it allowed, or no, I don't think embryonic is the sense. No, is the word like it it had a lot of potential in it. I guess um, it could be taken in many different directions. And I guess that that is something that uh, I was interested in showing with the book was the extent to which. With one idea that did bring about separ- like economists from different places and different positions, bring them together to create a collective that we can call separinos. It's also it also kind of created paths for different political projects, um, and so I think that that is one of the it has to do with that possibility and created by the notion of center periphery. Because many of them still kept subscribing to it and and referring to their projects in those in that terminology, so I think it, it it helped them understand their project even if it was going in very different political directions. And to me, like the Alliance for Progress and the and the Cuban Revolution are just a way to kind of symbolize that divergence and the way to, that that is starting to kind of diverge uh, in this way. And I think what's at stake with both is that they think that both of these projects are going to be able to transform the relation between center and peripheries, like to transform that uh, uh, global inequality, either via cooperation on the one hand or by kind of breaking away from it, like in the in the Cuban revolution.
0: You write that thanks to the dominance of King Sugar, quote, Cuba represented the quintessential example of the perverse relation between center and periphery that Sepalinos had denounced. And Sepalinos played an early, pretty important role in the revolution. They wrote its economic manifesto and set up the revolutionary government's planning agency. But ultimately, Cepal split over the revolution, and Cepal as an institution withdrew as the revolution became explicitly communist, particularly with one, the implementation of a really radical agrarian reform plan, and then with the purging of non-communist elements. How substantively did SEPAL help shape the revolution's initial trajectory? And then what were the consequences for SAPOL when it broke with the revolution?
1: Yeah. uh, So one thing that your comment about King Sugar reminded me of is that Sometimes, like the problem of being in the periphery and the problem of latin American countries uh was not that it was not only that they were producing commodities but that usually it was one or two commodities so that they were very exposed to the changes in prices and 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 demand of those commodities and that's why Cuba sort of exemplifies that to an extreme because it was one of the ones like let's so less diversified a lot of their economic Structure was geared towards the production and, and and commercialization of of sugar, so that's why it sort of epitomizes that that extreme, like the fact that it's just one or maybe two commodities, and that's So just to to kind of clarify why that is, and so what are the the what how did Cepal Sepal and Sepalino sort of shape the revolution? There's many there were um, to me this was a kind of one one of the other very um uh, novel. Um, innovations of the book had to do with this participation of of Sepalinos in the revolution. We hear a lot about intellectuals' interest in the in the revolution, but I I think I w- I would argue not as they neither of them had these kind of high level roles that Sepalinos uh, did, and even if so, so I think that's one of the uh, kind of main points first and how did they shape it? Well, as you said, like Sepalinos participated. Well, first of all, were part of the one Sepalino and another Cepalino ally were the ones who formulated the kind of economic manifesto of the revolution in its early days and set out what was the revolution trying to do. And a lot of the terms in which it defined the path of the revolution were along the lines of of the Sepalino ideas, kind of the transformation of the relation between Cuba and the United States, the reducing their dependence on sugar and industrialization of the um, uh, promoting industrialization in the island and moving away just of, of, of from agriculture, um, et etc. The other way which they, and they, in this manifesto, this uh, Regino Botti and kind of imagined a role for Cepal in the revolution, even before the triumph of the revolution. Like for Boti, Cepal had effectively kind of helped some countries like Brazil and Chile in bringing about or thinking about ways to development. And he imagined that Cuba could do the same. And so he did like invite Cepalinos very early on to participate in in Cuba with a mission, like one of sort of like a technical mission that was supposed to, train economists in planning techniques and and should remember that the, at the very early stages of the Cuban Revolution many of the sort of kind of middle classes and professionals were escaping the island and so it was important to kind of train this new uh, generation and the other one was putting Sepali, one of the Cepalinos, Regino Botti as head of the Minister of the Economy for the first uh, five years of course we can, we can you know, think about, well, to what extent were the ministers actually making decisions, but to my, uh, as opposed to Castro or, or Che Guevara or any of the other commanders, and and I think that the fact that he stayed and then kind of was asked to leave kind of uh, talk, speaks about the importance that it had in sort of thinking and, and, and shaping some of the, of the project. As for the consequences that it had for Sepad, well, first we have to do I have to talk about what happened to Cepal with the participation on the Cuban revolution. So at the level, so some Cepalinos, like I was saying, like Regino Botti, participated in the revolution sort of on as Cepalinos, but also on their own kind of personal terms. But the institution itself sent a mission to uh, Cepal and uh, to Cuba, sorry, and then kind of aborted early earlier than the Cuban government desired. And that was a clearly uh, political-based decision by Prevish that kind of shaped the position that Cepal was going to take with regards to Cuba, which was a a big debate, uh, Latin Americans, too, how all the governments had, like, and that position changed over time, how to address um, the Cuba question, let's say. Should they uh, support Cuba's right to self-determination regardless of whether they agreed or not with the path it was taken, or should they take a stand against a shift towards communism that many of the uh, leaders at the moment were afraid could take over uh, in the rest of the region. So uh, Cepal was sort of in that similar kind of conundrum, I guess, and and the decision taken of, of Prevish of taking the Cepalino mission out of Cuba before it had uh, sort of finished and before... The Cuban government uh, required it was interpreted as this sort of sign, uh, this this positioning uh, itself ag- against Cuba. So the two sides of this participation are are there, right? Like this kind of devotion to the to the Cuban revolution by Cepalinos like Boti, but also the institutional withdrawal. And that made it clear for many on the intellectual left that Cepal had sort of changed. And it was no longer representing this sort of voice of the periphery and this attempt to address global inequality, but sort of had necessarily not taken its ideals to the fullest extent possible, or at least that was interpreted uh, by the intellectual left.
0: But really, looking back, in a sense, it was the politics of the periphery, which were understandably, given the conditions, radicalizing and Prebisch, who was more staying same.
1: Probably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is that is also the case. And I think what I was what we were talking about with the structural approach to inflation was that sep- some Sepalinos were being sort of radicalized, but they were also radicalizing the debate, like by presenting their ideas and how their ideas were understood in this uh, polar context of polarization also helped kind of radicalize um, the debate. So both of both of the things were were happening and and they're happening simultaneously right like all the the participation on the cuban revolution simultaneous with the participation in the alliance for progress and with the conflict with the imf as well in like the peak of the conflict of the imf so so one can imagine that all these things happening at the same time like it's sepal being pulled in all these very different directions and without not without a clear resolution let's say
0: in, in 1961, President John F. Kennedy's Alliance for Progress was wholeheartedly embraced by Prebisch and also by, by Celso Furtado in, in Brazil and, and other Sepalinos. It was a reformist response to the Cuban Revolution, and it was really ostensibly, firmly on Cepalino grounds. It was this, this cooperation from the center, it appeared, that Sepal had been waiting for. And that their theory kind of depended on. And it drew on Prebysh's proposals. JFK met with Prebysh, requested that Seppel take the lead in working with the OAS to, to help each country make their development plan. But all of that was complicated very quickly. First, the Bay of Pigs invasion happens just like a month after the Alliance for Progress was announced, which scandalizes Latin American governments really across the political spectrum. And then, and then, Prebis, along with Fortado in Brazil, they were both really sidelined, and the alliance's promise program never was never concretely implemented. How how did this gap between the Alliance for Progress's lofty stated ambitions and its dismal reality? How did that gap emerge? And then how did the alliance's failure and more generally this increasingly intense opposition between the revolutionary and counter-revolutionary projects I- impact Seipal's thinking and political orientation?
1: Yeah. So first to kind of the idea of alliance for progress failure, I've had like a lot of discussions too about this with others about the extent to which it can, I mean, to me, uh, to which we can say it, it it failed at least very early on. And I think and I think for for Cepalinos at least, and for many who were there, although the alliance kind of ended up inspiring uh, many projects, and this is true of many like uh, housing projects, for instance, uh, in Chile, but in also in Colombia, in other uh, in other countries, to as you say, the contrast between what it could do and what it hoped to do uh, was the fact that uh, the gap was very clear from early on, despite that some, um, some of these projects were, you know, carried on and, and with the Alliance for Progress funding. So I think that the, one of the reasons what, you know, the Alliance for Progress failed is, I guess, one of the, what can be kind of stated in some of the words of Furtado, that it was very clearly a political tool. And so the economic effects that it would have were were being kind of derailed or or not not prioritized as much and so I think people started losing faith very quickly because it was clearly a response to the revolution and and although many people i mean that's the sort of thing in in that we have it that we have in sort of like in at this moment there are many people who are, support the revolution. Uh, but there are many others who are like worried of the consequences of having that revolution in in the region. So, even though this happened, I think that they, they even though by the support those who have supported the Alliance for Progress were themselves are kind of quickly disappointed because the ambitions didn't translate into practice for many reasons. Some have to do with like, I guess, bureaucracy and the uh, how to unfold these plans. Like, do the countries have the plans are required? Is there political will to make them happen, and also because it was clearly, as I was saying, that it was a form of like, it was a form of in- influencing domestic policies, and so people, um, many, many of those involved got uh, pulled pulled away.
0: Yeah, you you write about how in Brazil that the U.S. dedicated Alliance for Progress funds towards really superficial, short term projects that were mostly geared towards being tools for for pro U.S. propaganda rather than solving the development paradox, which is what JFK promised would happen. And you also write that Furtado in Brazil, like Prebisch, that that they were both quickly sidelined. And making matters even worse, the U.S. failed to provide much-needed aid to President João Goulart, forcing him into this untenable situation of choosing between high inflation and a regressive financial stabilization program that was infuriating the left and and militant workers. And, and in doing so, that the U.S. laid the groundwork for the military coup, the 1964 military coup that overthrew Goulart. And Goulart was, was initially seen by the U.S. as a democratic alternative to Cuba. But then the U.S. not only abandoned him financially, but also directly supported his overthrow by the Brazilian military. What happened to JFK's insight that those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable?
1: Yeah, it's 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 hard to know exactly, like, why did the Alliance for Progress kind of failed? I guess it goes back to your question of, like, why the Alliance for Progress failed that way. And I think, I mean, I don't have any more answer than... And then the one I was just saying before, I think they what Furtado said, like, well, the alliance has become more about the alliance than about progress is behind that sort of a failure that there's it's clearly a, a tool of foreign policy and a tool, a political tool. And therefore, all the other kind of ideals are sort of lost to it, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it, it not only failed to substantively assist Latin American countries like Brazil in, in developing along Sepulino lines, it also failed to meet the, the stated kind of realpolitik geopolitical ambitions of the Alliance for Progress for the U.S., which was precisely to support presidents like Goulart in Brazil as a democratic alternative to revolutionary Cuba. Instead, the U.S. just decided to side with, you know, military dictatorship and reaction.
1: And the case of Goulart, I think Goulart was also very, I think it also had to do with Goulart himself, too. He was navigating a very difficult path where things were changing very quickly. And the choices he had made sort of were influencing also uh, the U.S. Like the U.S. did uh, provide some funding for the Goulart government early on, but then it didn't fall, it didn't continue at the crucial moment when they needed, when Furtado got in charge of the Plano Trienal and solving sort of both the development paradox and the inflation uh, problem. It also kind of failed there in Brazil, but some people could say like that in many ways it sort of hold the ground for Chile for a while, kind of supporting those kind of reformists like Frey and, and it couldn't sort of prevent and in, in any case, like seen, I think some of the uh, what Furtado would say against the Alliance for Progress is that a lot of it is actually deepening the anti-Americanism and deepening the resentment uh, against uh, the U.S. for its lack of, of support for development. So it was counterproductive in this, all, all these uh, all these ways that uh, we uh, we've talked about.
0: You write that that Zepal really lost its sense of direction and some of its legitimacy amid what you call the quote twin fiascos of their relationship to the Alliance for Progress and then also the Cuban Revolution. And that it was this context that really helped facilitate the rise of dependency theory. Quote, the organization's once radical ideas had become orthodoxy. Dependency theory was was initially, it was developed in Brazil in the years leading up to the 1964 coup. And it was developed in two distinct circles of intellectuals. First, the Paulistas in Sao Paulo, which included, strangely enough, and was really led by, strangely enough, future neoliberal president Fernando Henrique Cardoso. And then there was the Brasilia group, which included the now long since famous German scholar Andre Gunder Frank. Dependentistas took CEPAL's conception of center and periphery. As, as a basic starting point. But, but they rejected the notion that the development paradox was really a paradox at all. Development, they wrote, could accompany dependency or it could even underdevelop the periphery. Why did this happen in Brazil? And what were the differences between these two groups and in terms of the version of dependency theory they articulated?
1: Yeah, I think that the dependency theory sort of, or dependentistas, as as a group started to uh, emerge in Brazil has to do, also speak of the influence of Cepalinos of in Brazil. This is where their ideas were framing and shaping um, Many of the debates about development, even though these yet to become dependentistas, because I I sort of try to trace a difference between the thinkers that were thinking about had dependency ideas. I I think that's the word I use in Brazil, versus when dependency coalesces as a theory, and and more more so as a movement uh, in Chile. So I think. The, that's one of the reasons, sort of, the influence of of the of dependency in Brazil, with like, and many of them were reacting to Furtado and his ideas uh, about development, and so the, I think that's, that has to do with it. And the two different uh, intellectual circles that from which the that there are not, I mean, there are in contact with each other. They're not wholly uh, independent, and and so that's why they there are many points of of contact and also of context contestation because they're um, with each other, I think kind of represent two different kind of, in a way, intellectual or academic projects. Like pa- Sao Paulo was this sort of, is the site of the industrial production of industrialization in Brazil. It has, is the site, but also is the site of like modernist architecture and art in, in Brazil, whereas kind of Brasilia sort of represents this sort of future, these kind of possibilities, rethinking or, or re-reconceptualizing these uh, Brazil as a nation, right? That was the sort of plan of Brasilia since uh, since its formation, to kind of reconceptualize the space and the territory of our, our of Brazil as a nation and shift it away from the centers of power that had been located on the northeast, where you know Sao Paulo, of uh, this of uh, this uh, southeast, where uh, Sao Paulo is located. So I think these two uh, intellectual uh, circles sort of represent that, and the ideas that are going to come from those very specific localities, let's say, are are serve serve to explain the future trajectories that are going to shape uh, the. Uh, dependency theory and the different strands within them because they come from these very kind of different positions within brazil itself and and are gonna and those positions are gonna shape uh the different strands that uh that will develop over time in the next uh throughout this 1960s and and in the in the early 70s
0: This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Your support ensures that Verso can continue publishing radical texts, especially costly translation projects. Some upcoming books included in the book club include. Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Climate Change's Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet by Matthew T. Huber, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future by Ben Tarnoff, and Bad Gaze: A Homosexual History by Hugh LeMay and Ben Miller. Cardozo argued that Seppolinos had failed, quote, to even pose the question of how and why the Brazilian entrepreneurs in a country inserted in the global economy as producer of raw materials and primary products would strive for national autonomy. This is something that became later on particularly salient after segments of Brazil's national bourgeoisie played a critical role in the 1964 coup. This naive assessment of the national bourgeoisie's interests, according to the Dependentistas, meant that Seppolinos had also generally failed to consider the periphery's domestic political and economic dynamics, including who owned and controlled the means of production. And thus, the sepalinos ignored, according to the dependentistas, ignored the possibility that dependency could deepen alongside development, which was indeed what appeared to be happening. What had led earlier Sepalinos to take such an optimistic view of the national bourgeoisie and? What was dependency theory's core critique of the role that SEPAL had assigned to the national bourgeoisie?
1: I think it has to do with their way of conceptualizing the space of development. And it was framed on in terms of, of the nation, right? And the, and the international, the relations between nations. So I think part of it is the, that's where the sort of vision of the role of the uh, bourgeoisie as as a leader of the as the and uh, as the leader leading kind of class I guess in the process of development and also of their whole vision of where where does development uh, happen right It's in the space of the nation of the or the international rather than uh, what the dependentistas are going to think about and it's sort of the transnational role of of capital right something that they are going to emphasize as well like uh, these links across nations of capital that that unite them all and i think i mean part of the critique of or or part of this optimism of on then uh their belief on the power of the national bourgeoisie them also has to do with with an an implicit sort of lack of or yeah like a a lack of understanding of or a lack of attention because i don't think it's a much was a problem of understanding but mostly lack of attention to the internal structures of power and the class relations that are emerging. Like in some ways, they believed, I think, that the state could act as the arbiter and embodiment of these different classes and interests and that their role as experts was to guide the state in that process. So I guess this has to do with, to uh, kind of sum up, like to the view of of the nation and the international as the space of development and this sort of conceptualization of of, of the state as as arbiter and like as of society I guess and, and of the different class interests that are as able to kind of guide the bourgeoisie in the way that they consider possible.
0: Gunter Frank argued that Sepal misdiagnosed the problem of development as originating in the 19th century's international division of labor. It, instead, he contended that it all began well before with with Spanish conquest and Portuguese conquest. Why? And what was at stake in this debate over when the problem started, over, over the historical origins of this unequal systemic dynamic between center and periphery?
1: I mean, this is like, you know, the question of... Uh the studies of, or like the, the history of capitalism in Latin America, and I guess in and in global history as well, you know, what are the origins of of capitalism and what defines those origins? You know, what element are you using to identify uh, what the origin is? And so I think that uh, was part of the critique of, of Gunder Frank, or or that was what, uh, yeah, it was part of the critique of Gunder Frank against Zepalinus to say that, they were looking for the origins of this inequality between center and periphery in the in sort of a crisis or or some some form of deviation of a norm on capitalist development that was uh, and, and supposed to provide benefit for all the participants of trade and he was trying to say like well the origin of the problem has to do with uh, of the an equal relation between centers and peripheries is pretty much embedded on capitalism itself, which to him, uh, and there is, of course, like tons of debate about this kind of Eurocentric position with the um, creation of a Euro-centered world economy in the early modern era of which Latin America was part. But I think someone, you know, many, some some scholars also kind of are starting to think like, well, uh, one can hardly say that Latin America was peripheral, you know, in the early modern era. If you think about that, it was the center of what colors called silver capitalism, right? The era of silver capitalism. So it was, you know, it was also the beginning of producing, it was the production of uh, raw materials as the mechanism to insert itself in the global economy, but it was also vital uh, rather than peripheral for the functioning of that world economy. So there are many debates embedded in sort of the critique on Gunther Frank and many of the ones that kind of intersected with it, such as the one about whether Latin America was feudalist or capitalist in the uh, colonial era, whether some of the legacies that or the obstacles about development were about sort of legacies of of that feudal mode of 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 production, if you will, are or it had to do with kind of more structural, systemic, world systemic uh problems like cephalinos were sort of proposing. And there's like I guess it, what I'm trying to say is like there could be many ways to unpack this question because that point is gonna is touches upon many of the of the debates about what capitalism means in Latin America and what Latin America means for global capitalism.
0: These decades of revolution and reaction sent dependency theorists, dependentistas, and cepelinos on the move into this really fervent Latin American intellectual diaspora. And the most important thing was Brazilian dependency theorists moving to Chile after the 1964 coup in Brazil. You write, quote, It was the migration of dependency ideas from Brazil to Chile at a moment in which the military forces ousted the president in the former. And the forces of the left envisioned a transition to socialism in the latter that turned dependency theory into a radical political movement in Latin America and the world. How did dependency theory's exile from Brazil, particularly its movement to of its headquarters really to Chile, impact dependency theory and then also, of course, expand its appeal and resonance, both... Both in Chile, which was undergoing a revolutionary democratic road to socialism under Allende, and then also just everywhere across the region.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the transition to Chile was key in two levels. One, because it reunited the um, the Brazilian and now sort of calling them the Brazilian dependentistas, and it it re and this reunification sort of meant that the different ideas that they were toying with became understood as one whole thing that one could uh, call dependency theory, even though many of them sort of contested that um, understanding of one, one sort of unified theory or more. And, or that they, could, they were all part of the same thing, you know, later on, the same uh, project. And the second is that this movement in Chile, in this very, um, the social sciences were very politicized, uh, made that the Brazilians sort of had to fit or find a space and fit into these different, into this political landscape and align themselves with many of the projects that were fighting for, uh, for position. So that that kind of mapping of the dependency groups in these different institutions, which the in these different academic institutions, which they themselves had a political affiliation, kind of created politicization of dependency theory. And many of them were actually kind of moving farther and farther to the left. So I think that was part of what radicalized the the dependentistas and what also made it uh, had its impact in the rest of the world. Like as the dependentistas sort of moved from Brazil to Chile for one coup and therefore gathered together, then Chilean military coup is then gonna spread, uh, not just dependentistas, but many of the social scientists who were sort of, let's say, trained or who had grown uh, with these ideas are now gonna spread all over the world. And simultaneously, a lot of social scientists and intellectuals around the world are increasingly paying attention to what's happening in Chile because of that, like because of Allende and then very quickly, right? because of the of the coup. So these sort of changes in the in the political landscape are the ones who are explaining the interest and the influence of 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 dependency ideas in in the region and in the rest of the world.
0: Frank's Gunder Frank's article, the development of underdevelopment was widely translated, and it really became the global reference point for dependency theory. And and that you write annoyed many Latin American dependentistas to what extent was this a legitimate critique of a Latin American theory becoming known so overwhelmingly through the work of an outsider and to what degree was it more a pretext for a more political a more political critique coming from Frank's right particularly from from Cardoso
1: yeah i think i, I think both of those are, are 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 true and coexist right like in the uh on the one hand it was it was true and I try to do I was just thinking about that a few days ago like this database that I constructed to sort of trace the citations of Carlos Juan Frank and it took like you know forever <laughs> to kind of make this happen and the I, and it was true that um many of the like you know that there's the Frank was overwhelmingly the uh, dependentista that was uh, being more referenced to but I think Men. It also led for others to seek for other dependentistas. So I, I don't, maybe it took time, right? Like in the in the first, I don't know, I would say first decade or so, Frank was definitely the one that was becoming the, uh, was the reference point. But then as others sort of kind of discovered where this was coming from, other dependentistas in Latin America were also kind of uh, being um, cited and quoted. And I think it something that I, I talk in the book. It has to do with the politics of this sort of, it's not like a, you know, not anything like today of our, you know, reference citation metrics uh, world um, at all. But there was a transition, uh, I think, very much driven by the political landscape of when does the sort of Frank's version of dependency that prevails over Cardoso's venture of dependency. And therefore, when each of them complains that the other one is taking a, a more of a, a space. I mean, I, I don't think necessarily that Gunter Frant did that as much as Cardoso did, sort of like claiming that there were, and it was like never named, that there were others who being were being interpreters and like translators of, of an experiment. So I think that when when sort of revolution seemed to be possibility, um, there was complaints or there was concern that it was Gunder Frank who was representing what Latin American ideas were. And when sort of revolution sort of faded out of the as a possibility in the political landscape later on in the 70s and 80s, I think sort of uh, Cardoso's version of dependency theory uh, acquired more attention and, and, and saliency. But I honestly think that a lot of these things have to do with like... Um, these individuals themselves going through all these changes and and trying to position themselves in in, in the academic world let's say it, and and in the political world so both of those things that you said are true like in ways somewhat ways like petty complaints i guess and on the other hand it had to do with actual transformations how things were read and how things were translated i think gunder frank for all of the critiques that he has had, and I and I do the same in a way for this oversimplification of ideas and over-determination of, of historical outcomes. I think those were valid critiques of, of Frank's um, ideas. In many ways, you know, help other uh intellectuals from Latin America to be known because he had an extensive or more extensive network, he was more prolific, he was in contact with so many uh, kind of academic centers around the world that probably the others didn't have that as big of a reach even though many of them were connected with other academic centers it wasn't their network was not as extensive as as that of Gunder Frank's and 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 obviously the fact that he was written uh, in English was was easier uh, was another factor contributing to that too
0: and and critically should mention that uh, Gunder Frank's work it was Gunder Frank's work that inspired the most popular dependentista text of all, Eduardo Galeano's classic Venas Abiertas de América Latina, uh, Open Veins of Latin America, which was read by youthful Latin American revolutionaries everywhere.
1: Yeah, and continues to be read. I think many people mm-hmm. are, that's the their entry book into, or their book of entry towards Latin America continues to be uh, open veins. Uh, so yeah, and he's the he's
0: including here in the United States. Very, very
1: much. much here in the United States, yeah. Um that's one of uh, one of uh, uh, the key works of the fusion of dependency theory, I guess. It's it's Open Veins for sure. P-
0: Prebisch ultimately left Sapeal to lead the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development or UNCTAD not not long after it was created in 1964. And for him you write that it was, quote, in many ways, his response to the burgeoning dependency theory. What was UNCTAD created to do? And in what sense was it a response to dependency theory?
1: I uh, I think, well, UNCTAD was sort of cre- created to address some of the problems in that international trade created on development and how to solve uh, some of these problems for all the peripheries of the world. So it, it was, I guess, unique in that it wasn't the first time, but it was certainly the most important one till that moment of bringing together all the sort of peripheries of the world, right? Like Asia, Africa, and Latin America kind of to discuss these issues of international trade, even though, I mean, it, it's these peripheries were in many cases kind of competing against each other in their in the in the market, I guess. Like they were competitors in the market for some of these products. So it was, you know, hard, I guess, to uh bring these to, to this together, not just for political reasons, but also for economic reasons as well. I, I do think that this is prevish sort of like response, even though these um dependency ideas are sort of growing simultaneously as UncTAD is progressing. Because prevish it was the mechanism that prevish used to kind of take the the repertoire sort of what would we call what we talked earlier on about cepal's development platform to the global level so many of what inspired uh unctad had to do with those commodity agreements with having quotas for certain products with having with reducing the protectionism of the center towards the periphery right like with opening the markets with having some sort of buffer stocks to, to avoid the fluctuations in, in trade, to provide money for balance of payments problems, like all these issues that Cepal had talked about in the early 1950s with the development platform were then carried over by Previs to UNCTAD. And the reason why I think it's, it's a response is because it's his way of saying these ideas are valid and can do more than uh, we in Cepal have been able to do at a moment that uh, Cepal is very much criticized uh, for its lack of uh, kind of understanding at what the problem of development was and therefore at the lack of, of results uh, that uh, its ideas have produced. Uh, so to the loss, like uh, Untar is sort of this response to the loss of legitimacy of CEPAL among the uh, intellectual left, or right? I guess that's how Previch sees it. sees like, you know, there's like this talk, he calls it, of um, exploitation, of like dependency, that for him, he, he uses this sort of term, it comes from these newbies, again. Okay? These newbies uh, thinking about development are coming up with these ideas, but really, let's just reaffirm what we what we think are the core issues and take it to beyond the region and into the global level.
0: Dependentista's power and influence in Chile was, of course, crushed alongside the popular unity government with Pinochet's 1973 military coup. Meanwhile, in Brazil, Cardozo would become the leading intellectual opponent to the military regime, but not at all as a radical leftist and not really as any sort of leftist at all he he made his way into the, the the opposition the the principal opposition party the Brazilian Democratic movement or MDB and led a sort of thoroughly liberal opposition to authoritarianism and then ultimately after the transition to democracy he served two terms as Brazil's rather neoliberal president in the mid-1990s how do we make sense of Cardozo's trajectory because I've, I've always found it extremely confusing
1: yeah uh, i mean that is one of the questions that i think this book is just not only this book i guess but with that i tried to open with this book because I, I and that is worth sort of like unpacking more well first of all i don't think i i think that when cardoso began his opposition to the military regime he himself and others would characterize them as part of the left it could be because the left was a very broad definition to anyone who opposed the military dictatorship. It could be because that was kind of very, the term had to be very broad in these conditions of, of authoritarianism. It could be that too. So, so first, that's one of the things that we should remember. Like, I don't know if like he necessarily like, or others think of him as something other than a member of the left in the in the 1970s and even into the early 80s. So there's 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 just one thing. And the other thing is that I think we should think about Cardoso as a critic of the development state since the very beginning, right? Since he began thinking about since he began criticizing Sepalinos for their belief in this in the in the development power of the state, in the development power of the bourgeoisie, in the conceptualization of the nation as the space. For, of the nation and the and the sort of the international, so the relations between nations as the space of development. He began his career, his intellectual career that way. And when he was trying to come to terms with uh, the military regime, he was also sort of thinking along those lines. How can this regime be, What? how can we understand this very developmentalist regime, right? Because the Brazilian military regime was, highly highly developmentalist uh it it started a a few years with some sort of what what we would later call monetarist uh ideas but that was very short and it clearly veered off to uh continue the development what i kind of sort of started to call like brazil's developmentalist vocation that lasts uh till this day in and it's kind of embedded in many of these institutions so so cardoso's position against this regime was also the position against the developmentalist state. And in that sense, we can see some continuity with what happens in what the so-called pure neoliberal era of the 90s in which he was uh, president.
0: That's fascinating because it means that dependency theory in Cardoso's case really becomes a critique of sepal developmentalism, not from the left, but but from the the right and from what would be become known as sort of the neoliberal perspective in Latin America.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I I mean, that's why I think sometimes the terms right and left start hindering more than helping us in the understanding of the problem, because, uh, you know, then we have to force like we have to force to answer the question of, well, when did he actually switch? You know, when did he like one day he was from the left and then the next morning or something he was from the right. And I think that is not a helpful way to think about it. Uh, and so that's why sometimes these perhaps those categories of left and right in this particular kind of case doesn't doesn't help us to un- understand what's uh, what's going on. Unless you kind of just say, like, well, he's a traitor, which, you know, some.
0: I'm sure many Brazilians have said that. <laughs> and it goes without saying that the PT and Lula were doing something rather different at the time.
1: Right, and in many ways, like I mean, the relationship between Cardoso and Lula is one is a is a it was or since not not just in the sort of in the post dictatorship era, era, but in the dem in the authoritarian era was a, a sort of a kind of contested contested one as well. But yeah, I mean, some some like Cardoso, but many others on the left did not necessarily support Lula in the very beginning. In, in fact, some of the dependentistas. Other depend- Brazilian dependentistas did not support Lula in in sort of the early stages and support other parties of the left. So there's a, there's a split, or uh, many splits, and many sort of process of negotiation and coalition building that are going on at the time that kind of are eventually going to shape how the process, sort of the historical process, unfolds to what we call the neoliberalism or the neoliberal era. Yeah,
0: you write that after the revolutionary heyday and amid. The rise of reactionary dictatorships, that that many Latin American intellectuals, maybe a bit disillusioned, turned against dependency theory. Yet at the same time, and you referenced this earlier, dependency theory was newly ascendant elsewhere in the world, including among left-wing Latin Americanists in the, here in the U.S. And, and in Europe. And also, very critically, it influenced Walter Rodney's classic, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And then also, influenced the legendary Egyptian-French-Marxist political economist Samir Amin. And it was Samin, alongside Gunder Frank, who in turn helped Emmanuel Wallerstein and Giovanni Arrighi shape what would come to be known as world systems theory. What did world systems theorists learn from dependency theory? And what then made world systems theory something new and distinct?
1: <laughs> that's a, that's a, a, a big question to have. But I think both of them, I think that the sort of line of influences as as any sort of line of influences is one that is hard to trace. But samira Amin does in the late 60s write about these dependentistas as as saying, well, this is where innovative ways of thinking about the world economy are emerging. It's, it's in Latin America where this Innovative ways of thinking about the world economy are emerging. But you can also say that you know people like him or or Wallerstein, by that matter, were were coming up with similar uh, ideas from the point of view of of, of Africa. Let's say, like uh, just as dependentistas were trying to understand the world economy not from the point of view of sort of Europe uh, or the United States and was sort of traditionally the case, but from uh, on the point of view of Latin America. I think what they're, what they are trying to do, and like, you know, like, uh, the world that, that Dependentista sort of imagined had to do borrowing that of Cepalinos, of center and periphery, was sort of further complicated by the notion that Wallerstein added of the semi-periphery, so that's kind of an an, an added uh, one, but I think that both of them kind of are trying to think in this sort of, like, systemic level, and... And one has to remember that, in a way, the dependentistas were observing the world from the from the from what they call the interna- internationalization of the internal market, like this diffusion of transnational capital that has nothing to do with with the particular nation states that has to do with the growth of multinational corporations and these divided forms of of organizing both capital and and labor and Wallerstein, in a way is sort of coming from the other end historically i guess uh the way he's re- approaching the, the emergence of the of the uh, of the world system so they're coming from two ends let's say of, of 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 a historical process of 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 the creation of sort of world systems, so I think that's how they kind of it's one way to at least think about how they they come together
0: you write, right, quote. As a result of the endeavors of Amin, Dependentistas, and many others, the third world transformed from a geopolitical to an economic category. How did that shift from this Cold War geopolitical category to an economic category, unifying oppressed nation-states struggling against this neocolonialist world system? How did that shift come about, and what role did dependency theory play in bringing it about, and and then also, is, is it a coincidence that these major third worldist economic initiatives, like the new international economic order, just like Sepal, took shape in the United Nations?
1: Uh, and and that has to do with many, you know, it's that's the cumulative effect of many voices. But I think Sepal was one of the crucial ones because the third world had to do with with sort of like it was the other in the Cold War division, right? There was the East and the West and then the rest, let's say, and that rest uh, was the third world. So I guess that's why I was saying like, well, this—it it is a geopolitical definition coming from the Cold War that then later on we started to think about as as, as an economic definition. And, and by that, I mean by the third world as defined by the place in the the place it the position it occupies in the global economy and especially in the international division of labor first as producers but now we also sort of you know we can talk about that similar terms in 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 other realms so sort of like the distribution of labor and labor uh, regimes or uh, work commodity the cons- consumption patterns and okay many others but in the beginning it had to do with this specialization as as producers of, of of raw materials and I think that. That definition sort of stuck, right? Like and it had more, not just more traction, but more possibility of surviving once the Cold War ended, right? And we can keep
0: and much more political juice.
1: Right, I guess. <laughs> uh, and it also was, you know, at this at the same moment, it was it was that definition that helped that was kind of underpinning initiatives like Untag. UNCTAD that we talked of before, but also the new international economic order, and many of those were, you know, the new international economic order was kind of very much borrowing or growing out of uh, the uh, legacies of, of of UNCTAD. So it is not, and I don't think it is to go to your question about the coincidence of the United Nations. I think. It, many uh, scholars uh, have talked about the extent that the UN became the vehicle and the platform, like say, to or the the arena that was used for um, used by those countries in the periphery or the global south to make their claims. Because I guess they until that moment they kind of they, they institutionalized one, and and so it's not coincidence that those paths were um, that both of these projects were UN projects. Although, you know, having said that, it's also true that many other um, attempts of internationalism on the global South kind of use other means that were not the UN necessarily, right? Like we can, you know, once kind of led by Cuba, but others also led by other um, countries as well that har- that did not pass through the UN. But the ones that did pass through the UN had this cepalino touch.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the UN goes from fifty-one members in nineteen forty-five to one hundred and twenty-six members in nineteen sixty-eight.
1: Yeah, and it keeps growing by the the seventies, right? So it does, it does become like they become this force in the General Assembly and and all the and and in many ways there there was a voice and a power that was not present in other international organizations. So that's also why it's not sort of surprising that the UN has this has this role and that and that they use the UN even if it's not you know so many people question I guess the extent to which the UN has you know concrete effects but it, one of the concrete effects it has is is, is one bringing all these uh, voices together and those being the possibility of like speaking up in on these global matters in a way that would be listened.
0: Yeah, and then like prior to widespread decolonization then, Latin America, Latin American countries were some of the few independent nation states that were not colonial,
1: colonizing
0: nation states. Though, I mean, they were led by Creole elites established by European colonization, so that's complicated. But they did occupy this kind of unique position in the international community prior to widespread decolonization.
1: Right, right. Like on these... And, and I think that had to do also with sort of the uh, why CEPAL sort of was able to become CEPAL, I guess, um, has the, the specific position of Latin America in the world, the political position of Latin America in the world, and as both, in a way, like the periphery that is independent, but also that in many ways consider itself as part of the West, as opposed to kind of other. You know, as opposed to Asia or 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 even Africa, right? That many in many, even despite the contradictions entailed by that affirmation, many of the Latin American leaders did consider Latin America as part of the uh, as part of the West. Um, so that also kind of helped to kind of frame the discussions that they are, and perhaps also to to limit them um, as well.
0: Where, where does the story you tell relate to the rise of? New, not new now, but new then, and rather conservative theories to explain the problem of third world development, namely modernization theory, which posited this linear path of progress that would lead all nations to follow the West in their development. To what, to what extent were dependency and world systems theorists responding to the ascendance of modernization theory in the U.S. or, or vice versa, or, or at least in some sort of conversation and conflict with one another?
1: Yeah, I think that is that is interest of, interesting. Not just of Sepalinos, but many of the development thinkers that are trying to uh, conceptualize development from places other than the Europe and the U.S. I guess, and it has to do with the fact that they both—and this is what Sepalinos did and the did—claim that there are different paths to development, that there are different ways to conceptualize it that uh development con- or that the country's development in the late 20th century or in the in the mid 20th century were uh had a different historical experience than the countries developing in the late 10, 19th century or even in the early uh 19th century so this attempt I at, like to kind of conceptualize historical difference that matters to the possibilities that they have to develop or not like you mean that has uh policy and political and economic implications goes along with a reification of some sort of also path of development, right? Like most most of these development thinkers kind of believe that it was industrialization, which was, you know, the path that all these other countries had taken was the means to achieve development. So I, I've always um, sort of, this is not kind of play necessarily a gigantic role in the book, but I do think that that is something that is kind of one of the, if if we were talking about the development paradox in sort of the economic world, this is the paradox also of these development thinkers that they're both trying to distance themselves, but they can't, they can't because they're because out of, you know, the intellectual tradition, but also because this is, this is the way that historically has been proven to translate into growth, right? Like the, uh, industrialization of all these different countries that had industri- that had gone through the process in the 19th century and that in some ways they, they did want to imitate even if they didn't want to follow the same way. And even if they were advocating for a different path than those that uh, the developing countries had transversed, the goal was <laughs> sort of, say, similar and follow the benchmark that they had established.
0: When we think about economists in Chile, we in the United States on, on the left typically think not of the Sepalinos but rather of the infamous neoliberal Chicago boys who played such a key role in the Pinochet dictatorship. But you write, quote, sponsored by the Ford Foundation, the infamous Chicago Boys who dominate our narrative of the battle of economic ideas in Latin America, struggled to unseat Sepalinos on their home turf, and were only successful after a sweeping realignment of political forces in Chile in the use of coercion and violence, how do we differently or better understand the story of the Chicago boys? One that I think a lot of listeners have have some understanding of when we see that they could only rest, rest authority from say Paul through the use of a brutal military regime's repression.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that the way I wanted to sort of uh, approach that question was sort of uh, kind of coming from a different end like not necessarily trying to understand the Chicago or or rather yeah trying to understand the Chicago boys in relation to the power that was or the power and influence that CEPAL kind of had among the sort of the poly- political or policy making elite in Chile that made it uh, necessary for a group like the Chicago boys to be formed and to seek influence so I guess what the the way I I sort of came to this question is to think like well there are more than economic ideas of there were there are not only more but more important economic ideas in Latin America than those of the Chicago Boys even though those are the ones that occupy that space as for the transition and the use of violence I don't. That is something that I can think. I, I I always, you know, think about. And of course, we don't have access to a counterfactual, right? Like, what would have happened? Like, how how much? But we can sort of, and it's something that I'm sort of more interested in doing, kind of tracing the continuities and not just the break. Like we think that in, uh, like I guess in Chile, there was like a fundamental, fundamental break in in the terms of economic ideas after the. Chicago boys and the, and the authoritarian regime but there are there are many ways in which the ideas of Cepalinos, i i i, I mean this is something that i i am starting to kind of research on uh, sort of lived uh through these kind of momentous regimes so uh that's the way sort of i i think about this like to what extent were i mean they were definitely crushed in in the moment but that doesn't mean that many of the, of, of the ideas uh, disappeared. And in fact, some of them were resurrected and implemented uh, during uh, what we call the neoliberal era. So I feel like these are something more than, there are uh, more sort of continuities, I think, than, than, than we imagine.
0: You write, quote, initially concerned with growth and development more than equity, For Sepalinos, the recent demands for better education and health care of a precarious middle class in Chile may seem as first world problems compared to the mid-century battle. Have the first and now second pink tide of Latin American governments from Lula to Boric in Chile today, have they basically picked up where dependency theorists left off in terms of their emphasis on not only global inequality in between countries, but but domestic inequality within countries and and do the Latin American left governments that have contended for contended for power and governed since the aughts, do they still maintain, perhaps drawing on dependency theory, some of that vision for a progressive regionalism that might reach that might reshape the global economy from the periphery along the lines of, of, of what Sepulino once imagined?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is something that is it, sort of like um, a question in my mind. So more than an answer, I don't think I have a concrete answer to this question. But I do think it's there are, as I was sort of saying before, there are certain certain initiatives that were put forward by Cepalinos in sort of the development era that come only to kind of be realized to, more, to a larger and more fuller extent in the so-called neoliberal era, and that uh, to me poses sort of like a question of well, how, what you know, what are the sort of legacies of these uh, um, ideas, but also the extent to which are they coming from the same assumptions and, and presuppositions, or they are just a different outlook using similar instruments, or the instruments look the same but are actually kind of very different. Uh, so so I don't know if I, I completely have a question to that, uh, an answer to that question of whether they are picking up. I think their their rhetoric is is very different and they from the two and they're obviously not ne- any of them sort of building on that uh, development era and many or on that development era. Yeah, they're not necessarily like they're not nostalgic. About uh, some sort of era that was sort of better before, and that we need to restate, but more thinking about how I think in some ways address some of the issues that were not kind of privileged in the past, and 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 that had to do with um, equality and 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 social um, development, if you will.
0: To to what extent do you feel like the ideas put forward by Sepulinos and Dependentistas? that those ideas still are still relevant for the predicament of Latin America today?
1: That's a big question. I, 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 I think in some ways, in some ways they are, but in some ways I think we are also, as I was trying to say before, like I think dependentistas were sort of right in the way that the limits that the Sepalino ideas had in terms of, of the nation state or the, uh, or the bourgeoisie, and how we we can talk about we need to talk about different like other categories than 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 those two to kind of understand Latin America today. But I think some of the problems with regards to the position of Latin America in in the in the world economy are 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 very much there. I mean, some of the countries have managed to to realize many things that the Palino sort of imagined in terms of like more or less although this has changed very recently more or less achieved some sort of uh, monetary stability that you know the past two years are, have changed everything i guess but but they had managed to do something uh, something like that but a lot of the questions of and 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 therefore sort of sort of solved some of the short term problems of created by that position that latin america plays in the in the sort of world economy but the long-term problems are still there, I think, like a sort of this uh, dependence on, on on the production of agricultural goods, even though many of them are much more diversified than they used to be in the in the in the mid-century. So I think, kind of, to solve many pro- policy problems, maybe maybe we need to kind of rethink some of these categories. But in the broad sense, they're used they're useful categories for historical and long term uh, and development uh, um analysis and sort of i just thinking about your pink tide question and and i don't like and it's because a lot of the not all of them but many of these leaders were some had had some populist vein like if you think of, or, or or were very much uh, can be described along those lines like if you think of chavez for instance i don't think that that was necessarily like Like for many of the Cepalinos, like even like Prevish or Frutal, that was what was kind of more dangerous or that was they were less identified with in terms of um, their political alignment. So I don't know if like they would be here today. Would they align with some figures like them? Probably not.
0: It's interesting to try to think through to what extent Latin America's position in the world economy has both changed and stayed the same because on the one hand there countries like Mexico and Brazil which had relatively successful forms of industrial substitution import substitution industrialization have experienced forms of deindustrialization and in in recent decades whereas while at the same time like you mentioned, although some countries primary commodity, exports have diversified to an extent a lot of their economy is still based on the export of primary goods even as more of those goods go not just to the united states and europe but to china the basic structure of the world system has stayed in place
1: yeah i mean i think that's that's sort of the and and that's why it's harder to i i think in many ways the 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 idea of center periphery that notion sort of helps to think about those, uh, but it doesn't map as neatly, I guess, as it was in the mid century, and 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 therefore we we sort of have to adapt uh, how we how we think of those terms. I think I think they're useful because as as I guess going back to kind of one of the big questions, like sometimes we think of center periphery as just needing. As another word for saying imperial or colonial, and I think the value in some of these categories was what that they were not thinking of these terms, but how much kind of the system sort of worked economic system worked as opposed to how are the political relations between these um uh, countries and so in that sense, some of that helps to think about um Latin America today but it is i think the 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 position of these countries has. As as you were saying, and as I sort of talk about it in the epilogue, has has changed in some ways that would surprise Zepalinos both positively and negatively. I, as I was saying, like I think the 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 vulnerability that Zepalinos saw of these countries to their position in the global economy has, if not has not been eliminated, but has lessened due to a number of structures. Like as you were saying, like the increasing the number of buyers uh, of the products, but also in the number of products uh, that they're selling. And because in many ways, they did undergo industrialization and they did create some important, other important sources of, of growth.
0: Well, Margarita Fajardo, thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And and uh, thank you to all the ones who made it through this point. <laughs>
0: Margarita Fajardo is a historian at Sarah Lawrence College and the author of The World That Latin America Created, the United States Economic Commission for Latin America in the Development Era. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, After noting that, the discovery of gold and silver in the America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamous Frankel and Muriel Solomon. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. And we have a new really good-looking website. Check it out. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe. If it's on iTunes, also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What really does that, though, is you telling your friends to check out the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.